1: I'm down for writing about, like, you know, black-owned businesses, just minorities. I'm Damian Bolwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, race and politics in the restaurant world. I'm joined by Justin Phillips, a reporter at The Chronicle, who is perhaps the only black food writer and a major newspaper in the country. We'll talk about what that means, and we'll also talk about his story about Kwame Unwachi, who he calls the most important chef in America. All that right after this. Justin Phillips, thanks for coming in.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Justin, you have my dream job at the paper. Oh, wow. <laughs> you write about food. Uh-oh. I like to eat food. Yeah. So the reason you're here is that uh, you wrote a story that I think uh, generated a lot of response. Um, great story about a chef, Kwame Unuwachi. Tell us about how you came to this story and why you wanted to do it.
2: So the thing about Kwame is that he uh, he's a young black chef uh, from Washington D.C. He's like 29 right now, and he you know he, uh, recently won a James Beard Award for this restaurant Kith and Kin in Washington D.C. So that's kind of what made him prominent right now. He also has a uh, a book out called the diary of a young black chef which is something that the food world has never seen before just talks about like his trials and tribulations and kind of racism that he's faced and growing up you know in Louisiana and Nigeria and in uh, New York and it's just you know he's such a complex young famous character that uh, you know it's hard not to be drawn to him basically.
1: Yeah, you've been, we, we talked about this. You've been following him for a long time.
2: Yeah, he was, on, uh, he was on Top Chef, like, season 13.
1: Tonight, Kwame enters Last Chance Kitchen. Will Kwame break Jason's winning streak?
2: It was like a road trip one. So it, 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 gave, it, it was a chance for him to kind of, um, you know, he seemed more interesting than the average contestant.
1: Well, he is—he is one of the only uh, black chefs that has had this prominent a role on the Food Network, correct, or on television in general.
2: Well, I think recently, uh, I would say like recently, yeah, like his star has risen very, very quickly. But we've had like other black chefs in the bay from the Bay Area, or, or at least Tanya Holland, who runs Brown Sugar Kitchen uh, in Oakland and San Francisco. She's been on Top Chef before, but he's the first of his kind, basically, like young, uh, really charismatic, and to become so famous so quickly
1: and you write that you are one of the only black food writers at a major publication in the country yeah for people that haven't read the piece you you relate this story of of your parents flying into town and you are about to interview them the next day and they're asking you who you're interviewing yeah and yeah. You, <laughs> and you <laughs> and you say what so uh they asked me who i was interviewing i told him a
2: celebrity chef and they're uh and they're like what's his name and I was like Kwame. Now you're not going to confuse Kwame for like a white dude or anything <laughs> like that. So they immediately knew what was up and they just, you know, were kind of like, "Oh, you know, really." And my dad was the first one to be like, "Huh?" And so then it kind of started from there where I realized telling them that name wasn't just, you know, there's something that's it's significant, right? Like they of could immediately relate to that. They were, you know, like impressed without me describing what he had done,
1: basically. Why?
2: For people who don't have to pay attention to food all the time, like, I have to obsess over this nonsense most of the time. (laughs) So, you know, for my parents, like, they'll watch hit shows, you know, they'll watch Top Chef or something like that. They, you know, uh, I put that they liked Anthony Bourdain, which, you know, a a lot of people did. They watch Gordon Ramsay in Hell's Kitchen. They don't really care for him. Like, that's as far as it goes for them. But if you give, if you can say a name to, like, black parents say a name that sounds black to them and call them a celebrity chef and be like, you know, this is a big deal that I'm meeting them. It's impressive. Like, they relate to that. They enjoy that.
1: Yeah. Well, it was a very personal piece. And you call him the most important chef in America. Yeah. So talk about why and talk about um, what was so personal about um, about his story.
2: You know, uh, David, I don't know if you used to do this. Like, you remember being a kid? And going to school, and if you had, like, an event or, like, maybe it was, like, a dance or something, and if you got if you went there, the first thing you did was look for somebody that was either a friend or somebody that you had class with that you could, like, sure. you know, like, vibe with, right? Mm-hmm. You, you wouldn't be solo. So the reason why I say he's the most important, uh, Kwame's the most important, is that there's, one, a complete lack of black writers at newspapers that cover food. Um, there's also just, you know, an overall lack of black writers at large publications. In yeah, just in general. And then when you take that to um, celebrity chefs, you know, people that are famous on TV that have these really, you know, potentially Michelin-starred restaurants, there's even, you know, a greater lack of black faces. So the convergence of those two things made him um, important, basically.
1: Yeah, I, you, you know more than me, but I feel like at, at times we see... You know, a cuisine, um, you know, there might be chefs out there doing the work and they have the restaurants and then it might be a a white man who does a version of that food in a really expensive way. And it just, you know, I think people have... uh, are understanding that a little more and maybe yeah. seeing it at face value? Well, you know, we, we Kwame and I talked about uh, the normalizing
2: of, of black chefs. Like at some point, I shouldn't have to write a piece that's like, this kid's the greatest chef, you know, the, the most important <laughs> chef in America. It should just be a normal thing, right? You should see that black chef. And I, it's funny because I, I get emails all the time whenever I write something extensively about race. And this is the first one where I also included, like, bits of my family in it. Mm-hmm. So people were like, God, you know, I really, I read your stuff all the time, but, man, do you have to write about race all the time? <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know, it's a huge part of the dialogue. But at some point, yes, I would like for this to be normal, right, where Kwame isn't just some exclusive thing that hasn't happened before. And even for him, you know, like you were just talking about, like, a certain concept with a white chef being able to do it and charge a lot of money for it. Kwame his one of his first restaurants um had like uh you know it was two floors just really luxurious you know, high concept this, yeah high concept like it, it what what they say it was like Icelandic sheepskin <laughs> over the seats next to the bar it was just really insane and you know if you m- met him you wouldn't com- compare that aesthetic you wouldn't be able to you know, relate mm-hmm. that aesthetic to him. And so he opened that place and was charging $185 per person for a variety of reasons. One might be just insanity, probably. <laughs> but like he had been trying to get this place open for years, you know, comes down to it, opens it almost $200 per person. Other chefs do that all the time. We pay, you know, went to the French Laundry recently and dinner was like 300 plus individually. So this isn't crazy. But that place collapsed within months. Now, I'm sure there's other reasons, like financial, they're probably in the hole when they started. But just the idea that you have a young black chef who opens a nearly $200 per person restaurant that folds very fast, I think that's indicative of other things. I'm sure someone who's not brown, who is equally as famous, could have done that and would have stayed open longer. But I think... I don't know. I think there's reasons why that probably didn't work out.
1: Yeah, we've also talked about how um, it seems like a lot of the black faces on on, uh, television shows, Mm -hmm. on food networks, seem to be uh, over a a barbecue smoker. Right,
2: right. Or, yeah, they're either barbecuing or they're, like, uh, doing soul food or something like that. I remember Tanya Holland from Brown Sugar Kitchen one time was like, uh, we were talking about just representation, as we always do, and she was talking about when she used to pitch concepts to people, everybody wanted her to be like uh, like Big Mama kind of, you know, like just the older black woman in the kitchen making Southern food. And Tanya is like a complicated, smart, impressive, uh, you know, person. She's an incredibly talented chef who could do anything that she wanted to do. But it's just funny that, you know, she would get pigeonholed in that role and i don't know it just speaks to what you were what you were just talking about yeah do you yeah. feel
1: do you feel you get pigeonholed uh, when you're out there writing about food oh boy
2: i mean i i definitely think that my preference is to highlight these stories and then as i've done that the normal reaction from people is to bring more of those stories to me mm-hmm. then you just continually do them i'm down for writing about like you know black owned businesses just minorities uh, women, whoever it, they may be. I, I am always down to write these stories and I, you know, there are times where you know, sometimes you don't always want to do the same thing over and over again, where are just like, God, you know, maybe I'll try this this time. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like we've just had a conversation about how there's a lack of black writers at newspapers in this country. I'm, I think the, I, I would, I am glad if there is a level of tokenization to the content that I do, I would rather do that than not be, you know, than me not be here and be able to do these stories. Like, I think it's good because then the more I do these, the more normal they become. Same sure. way with, you know.
1: Yeah, well, you know that I find these, these stories to be um, the most interesting ones that are at the intersection of oh, yeah. race and class and, uh, and justice. They are, to me, fascinating, but they're very difficult to do. Right. So that's why I am sort of um, admire your work. Um, you guys try to, to take the, the food world in, in different directions.
2: Right. It's, it doesn't always have to be comfortable conversations that you have when it comes to restaurants. Like food itself is intrinsically tied to race and um, finance and to access and opportunity. And it speaks to so many things. And to distill it down into just, you know, this place is really fancy and the food's cool. Look at these photos. <laughs> it's insane. Like we can't, you know, we, all we do— see it for what it is and then we just uh yeah we just find the stories within that and i think for me um a lot of these fall into you know minority groups and
1: you're saying there's more to it than whether they pulled off the souffle or whatever i'm telling
2: you man i i I guess it's uh it might sound (laughs) shocking but it's a little bit deeper
1: so okay in the article let's go back to it um you said that in your job um, as a food writer that you often have to code switch. Tell us what that means. Oh, yeah. And, you know this. I was think the, most people have heard the term. Right,
2: right. right. I, I told you that I, some most of the emails that I got from people were... were uh, After the article? Yeah, after the article came out, we're saying, like, oh, I get it. Minority people were saying, like, oh, yeah, I, I have to do that for my job, too. The best example I could come up with for the story that was, like, printable is just the idea of having to go to uh, a restaurant and talk about how a $300 tasting menu functions and understanding why certain dishes work the certain way and, you know, why it costs that much and all that. Having to write a story about that then like, getting on BART and arguing with my brothers about, like, who our top five favorite rappers (laughs) are. Like, it's, you know, it reminds me of, uh, like, physically, it reminds me of being in high school. We had to wear uniforms. And as soon as the bell would ring, we would all go to the, uh, like, parking lot and untuck our shirts and stuff and, like, take off badges where you're just kind of like, all right, get the chill and be myself and so for this coverage um the way that I behave with like the homies isn't the way that I would behave in you know certain settings for these stories because one there aren't that many people that look like me that come in there to report these stories and two I mean also just being professional I guess so part of it is just yeah I mean that that's a lot of what the code switching is like it's not your natural element, but you have to flip into a certain person to fit that element to get the access to these stories and be able to tell them properly mm. so it's
1: it's it's part of that old idea that that I think is being confronted more and more that that there isn't like a mainstream and then the other yeah that we're all part of the <laughs> the mainstream, yeah. yeah, but people can really fall into that and in looking at the, the, somehow thinking that their people are are the main people, everybody yes. else
2: is yeah. That's absolutely right. It's fun and
1: it's uh exotic.
2: Yeah. Exotic. God. <laughs> That's such a good way to put it. The uh yeah, no, it's weird because um yeah, I don't know. Just situations, just situations that arise are just strange. Sometimes like I'll, you know, if I've written about a place and um and I've met the owner and say like I go there to like go eat. Mm-hmm. And I obviously I, you know, wanna go in and go out and not be noticed and all that, but it's San Francisco, so if I've written about your restaurant, we've met in person. You'll probably remember me if I come in because I'm only the black. I'm the only black food writer around here doing these stories for the most part, especially you know. And so, um, anyway, there's been times where like, if I go into a place, uh, I might not get like service that other people will get. I might be like waiting around, like, all right, well, maybe I'll get a spot at the bar or something. Somebody will come up and say anything, and then when it doesn't happen if the owner's around and they notice me, they'll come running down and be like, oh, my God, man, how long have you been waiting? <laughs> I'm like, it's all good. So it's just, I don't know, it's interesting.
1: And if you walk in there after you've um, had a phone interview oh, with the yeah. folks, I <laughs> yeah. think, did you mention something? Yeah, about I was that before? about,
2: yeah, if I've set up an interview, there's been times where I've set up an interview and uh, gone to the place to do the interview, and if myself, I'll walk in with someone, uh, you know, someone that's not black, and, um They'll go to that person first before they'll stop me. And and I'll be like, nah, nah, it's me. It's here to do it. And I'm like, oh, it's like the double take. But, you know, being out here doing this stuff, doing these stories, the idea is to, like, normalize it. You know, at some point, there'll be multiple kids like me just the same way that there might be multiple Kwames around. And that's kind of what you want.
1: I wanted to ask you, Justin, about your childhood and how you came to journalism and food writing. Was this (laughs) something you always wanted to do?
2: Oh, man. So, my mom was uh, my mom was an English major in college. Uh, my dad didn't go to school. And so she made us read a lot, write a lot. Um, that was her big thing. Like, she didn't want us saying ain't and y'all and stuff like that. Like, she was totally against that for a long time, but she got over that. And then, uh, so that was kind of, like, a part of me. So I always liked writing um, and also liked sports. So first part of school, like, I... Played football in college for a little while. And then um, after that, I was like, well, what's the other thing that I'm interested in? Well, it was writing. So I was still interested in sports. So I wrote about sports. And that was like my first couple of internships, blah, blah, blah. And coming from like a Southern household, I know in my family, all the men cook. Like all the guys love cooking. We'll debate recipes. Like back home, my dad will my share barbecue tips like with his neighbors or like, you know, gumbo, <laughs> stuff like that, red beans and rice. And, you know, you just it was just a normal thing, the same way that I would talk about, you know, talk to my mom about cooking, I would talk to my dad the same way. So I was always interested in it. And um and I liked the stories behind it, like kind of how a recipe comes together over the years. I mean it's the same thing. I feel like, you know, going from sports to obsessing about food go hand in hand. Right <laughs> like if yeah. you think about going to like a Giants game or a Niners game or a Warriors game, um, if you used to go before everything got wildly expensive. You could probably remember what you ate when you went, right? Or like a hot dog that you got or a drink that you might have had. So everything, I feel like those things are really closely related. So anyway, so I went from sports uh, to food. And yeah, I mean, there was Metro, a bunch of Metro reporting in there. I was like a city reporter and a gaming reporter. And, but yeah, I landed and I, uh, and so back in Louisiana, I had this food column that kind of blended uh Me being often self-deprecating and talking about, like, Louisiana restaurants and stuff, and it turned into reviews, and I think that kind of bridged the gap between, like, uh, some of the, uh, most of the metro reporting that I did and the food writing that I was going to come to do out here. And so it just kind of worked yeah. out.
1: Yeah, I always thought there was something amazing about writing about a subject like food or sports where people are really into it as, mm-hmm. a, as a passion, mm-hmm. but then to actually bring, you know, journalism to it. Mm-hmm you know to find the stories behind the stories sometimes the sometimes the audience can be can mm-hmm. be terrific they can be really into it
2: well it's funny uh because we, so the sports audience is loud right if you write a sports story <laughs> you're going to hear from people all the time but the food audience is also loud but it's way smaller so it's sometimes like uh you know I can care about something passionately in the restaurant world and be like god how come no one's listening to me you guys need to know about this. And then I realized, you know, at a certain point, people just don't care, right? And, (laughs) you know, it's different with sports. I feel like a lot of people can be on the sideline and invested in a story that doesn't matter.
1: And what what has been your uh, biggest impression of food in San Francisco?
2: God, I remember when I, one of the first stories I wrote about, um, I'm not going to like say names or anything like that. Also, people could just Google this stuff, I guess. (laughs) Sure. I'm sitting here trying to like hide restaurants. But uh, I wrote a story about a restaurant serving um uh truffles on an ipad the ipad was a plate on an ipad playing videos
1: of dogs digging for truffles
2: i, <laughs> I you got i gotta, thought
1: you were gonna say uh, i thought you were gonna talk about uh what you wrote about the uh the pure uh cookie dough ice cream nah, concept
2: nah. oh no nah. <laughs> that came later I'm also about like the very first like i don't even think it was uh yeah, this is like one of, the, one of the earliest times, I was, one of the early stories that I did, but I remember thinking like, God, this is, uh, what is this? Like, this is insane. And obviously, like, you know, we poked fun at it, but um, I was just thinking, wow, this restaurant scene is wildly pretentious. If something, if a, an idea can go from kitchen to table like that and no one objects and says like, eh, hey man, this is kind of weird, right? We should probably do this differently, but... I also have grown to understand how there is a little bit of beauty in that absurdity. And uh, I feel like that's just my growth. And, you know, as a food reporter out here, kind of seeing all ends of the spectrum and understanding how that kind of idea can
1: manifest. Given that scene and how, you know, how wild it is and how much people care, yeah, people obviously, care about, about the restaurant culture, yeah. um, what do you see as, as your role as a writer?
2: I do think sometimes uh, some of the stories that I write are a chance for – to bring a little like uh, – I don't know, like levity kind of um, – I don't know, like a little bit of common sense of things that are happening. I feel like we can get caught up in a lot of trends or just talk about things without realizing that maybe 90 percent of the people that were – that are reading the story might not understand some of the terms that we're using or the history of these restaurants. Um. Yeah, so I think I do take pride in that. I feel like some of my stories kind of apply to everybody, depending on the subject. And um, But I also think uh, my role here, and we we talked about this earlier, is just to kind of shine a light on um, minority businesses. Like, there's so many out here that are doing absolutely fantastic. And, uh, you know, I think the more that we've written about them, the more people have become too have come to take an interest in them, like people that wouldn't have years ago that read the Chronicle. And, um, you know, and sometimes
1: it's hearing those stories that...
2: Yeah, yeah, like it, it...
1: Somehow moves the needle.
2: People always want something, like something has to resonate with them for them to care about it. And so I think, you know, uh, one person who's doing a really good job of that is is Soleil. Like there are plenty of people who, who will reach out, who will hit me up after she does a review and be like, well, you know, I never thought I needed to go to X city to try X food until... I read this review. I didn't, you know, I didn't care about this until she explained, you know, blah blah blah. And that's, you know, that's what you want. You yeah. Want to or to
1: wait, try. you're saying this spot, this one restaurant might be better than the one that costs two hundred bucks? Right.
2: A oh. Oh a wow. Yeah. You're wow. telling me if I get outside of San Francisco, I might <laughs> I can still find something delicious that won't make me go broke. That's incredible. And so, I I feel like we're. Yeah, that's part of my job is to kind of. Kind of expand the the coverage that we do, and just you know, challenge myself, challenge readers, make people think about race issues, make people think about access issues, you know, challenge power or whatever. Like it's, no.
1: well, you do it very well. I have two more questions for you. Uh oh. The first is, you know, turning back to the to the newspaper and places like the Chronicle. Uh-huh. Why don't we have more black writers? And um, you know, why aren't there more black food writers nationally? Yeah. Um, I should probably be asking myself. Yeah.
2: the uh, You know, we we talked about this a little bit, too. I feel like the answer is, you know, complicated. But there are, you know, there's some really, really great freelancers that are out there and people that work for, like, you know, online publications. But as far as, yeah, and I'm talking about black writers, but as far as, you know, newspapers like the LA Times, New York Times, these big places with dedicated food sections, they just don't have any black writers. Now, why that is... Man, uh, I don't know. How much time do we have? Like, I feel like this goes back. I don't know. But part of it is just I don't think uh, those food sections are looking for those kind of writers. They might say they are, but they're not. Look, uh, I got hired here. Paolo Lucchese hired me on our food section. And to this day, I'm not sure how why he did that. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was nothing about me that fit, you know, like the – the box that you would put a food writer in, and he rolled the dice. He was like, you know, let's do it. Let's see how it works.
1: I don't think it was that risky. <laughs>
2: I mean, I feel like, it, I, it's you know. Very modest. I, I don't know how, um, yeah, maybe maybe it was a little bit safer than that. But, you know, I was one of his earliest hires and stuff. And so I feel like, you know, as a as an editor, you want to make sure you make the right choice. Yeah. And so Paulo went with someone who wasn't even in the state. Like, those are the kind of if you want to call them risks, I guess uh, and I guess they're risks of you know other people in the newsroom haven't done them before, but those are things that newsrooms have to do, like you have you could you should be in Los Angeles and look at a writer who's in South Florida and you know who's covering i don't know crime in a newspaper but has a talent for feature writing and he's black or she's black. bring them in and try you know like it
1: yeah, no, it's been a huge issue, and the realization that that everyone has made is that um. It's not even just a fairness issue. Right. It's about the stories that you miss. Right. You know, and that realization, you know, I think has, has spread. And
2: I, th- I feel like, you know, uh, you deserve a lot of credit, too. I feel like you loop in a lot of voices on coverage. I'm in the food section, and you and I have had conversations about stories that happen in Metro. Like, those, like...
1: I'm just hoping you invite me to lunch or dinner. See, that's... <laughs>
2: I, look, man, I don't have the power, David. You got to you gotta go ask, like, you got to go ask Soleil or something. <laughs> She's the one to go with. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I feel like the conversations that you and I have had, and I know they aren't limited to just us. I'm sure they happen in, in Metro often, but those are things that start a process of making our newsroom more diverse. You have to recognize your flaws, like understand, like, all right, our shortcomings are – here, here, and here, and our lack of diversity is reflected in our coverage in these ways. And then you go about addressing it, and you have to understand that you have to go out of the traditional circles that you normally find writers. And so, you know, it's all about taking the right steps to do it, and so you gotta have people like you around, and that helps.
1: Well, thank you. We, we definitely try. I got one more, um, one more question for you. Uh-oh. The other day I was at a Taqueria <laughs> <laughs> Cut off and the it podcast. was delicious. It was delicious, and um, and I had to uh, snap a picture and and send it to you. Um, do you get tired of people constantly sharing food pictures and raising uh, food issues with you?
2: Ah, uh, you know this is what I hate. If I'm out with people that I haven't met before, and uh, someone's like Justin, Justin's a food writer for the Chronicle, and I'll notice somebody in the group. I don't know why this is the case. It's usually a dude. And they'll kind of lean back and be like, oh, yeah? What's your favorite blank? <laughs> and then they want to, like, debate me on it. I'm like, man, just I, that's what I hate. That's I, you, you can show me pictures all day, tell me why you love the place, but I, I don't feel like fighting with you over, like, trying to argue what my favorite, you know, taqueria is or southern spot is. Come on, man. I don't have energy for that.
1: Justin Phillips. Thank you so much. Damien, I appreciate it, man. This is fun. Thank you to food writer Justin Phillips for joining us. Thanks to Libby Coleman for producing this episode. And thank you for listening.
0: Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network.
1: If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing,
1: you can support Fifth and Mission. And the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle.
0: There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.